Hi, I'm Eric Voss, and Game of Thrones concluded with the winner of the Iron Throne being, well, no one, thanks to Drogon. But the new seat of power in Westeros is one that rolls, with Tree Wizard and awkward party guest Bran the Broken replacing the wheel that Daenerys broke with a set of wheels of his own. Let us take one last ride and break down this finale episode with an in-depth scene-by-scene analysis, pointing out all the missable callbacks to the 70-something episodes, hidden secrets in the visuals and the music, and how this show, adapted from George R. R. Martin's books, ended with subtle parallels to Martin's big inspiration, J.R.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And really what the deeper meaning of all this is. Like, does branch winning mean I should be nicer to trees? I would be nicer if they stopped laughing at me. Shut up! trees. Let us start this deep dive at the opening scene in which Tyrion Lannister silently surveys the ruins of King's Landing, destroyed by Daenerys, a war criminal. It is dark times, and the first element of this dark nightmare that Tyrion notices are falling snowflakes. Despite Arya defeating the Night King in the Battle of Winterfell, winter is still coming, now arriving in a heavy snowfall that blankets this destruction, further burying the dead and mixing ominously with the drifting ash of the city's remains. Snowfall on Game of Thrones is always represented coming death and darkness. But now the element is reassigned from the White Walkers to the true arch-villain of the series, Daenerys Targaryen. As long as she breathes, Westeros remains under the threat of a long night. Tyrion's eyes drop to the carnage on the ground, the little girl, a naked burn victim limping away helplessly, evoking the napalm victims of the Vietnam War. Another soldier sits in the rubble and sobs into his hands. And of course, the charred horse toy of the girl Arya tried to save. This young victim reminds us of Shireen Baratheon's terrible fate. And for Davos and the others, a haunting sign of the danger that the innocent face under Danny's rule. Tyrion goes ahead alone, passing a cracked bell, one of the many bells that he hoped would signal surrender, but went not only ignored by Daenerys, weaponized when Drogon collapsed this bell tower onto Arya. Tyrion gazes up at what is left of the Red Keep, with the big change to its skyline being the missing Tower of the Hand, which was demolished in the battle. It reflects how Daenerys' actions have made it literally impossible for Tyrion to serve as her her hand. John tries to stop Grey Worm from executing Lannister POWs, saying, Grey Worm! Mm, awkward John. Grey Worm actually goes by his original Valyrian name now, Torgo Nudho. John should have remembered Daenerys calling him that last episode, and later, you'll notice Sir Davos actually tries to correct this mistake. Torgo Nudho. Am, am I saying that properly? Tyrion passes over the map floor courtyard. The past battle fissured this map right down the middle of the continent, foreshadowing the North's future as an independent kingdom. But before I continue, thank you to Raid Shadow Legends for sponsoring this episode. Raid is the brand new free-to-play mobile RPG with the most amazing storyline, awesome 3D graphics, giant boss fights, PvP battles, and hundreds of champions to collect and customize. Like, I never expected to get this kind of level of performance out of a mobile game. Just look how crazy the level of detail is on all these champions. This fella's got some, ooh, uh, nipple rings. He can zoom and enhance all the way in on those babies. Yowch! And special announcement, Raid Shadow Legends Special Tournament is happening globally right now! You can compete with me and millions of other players in a massive arena tournament for crazy in-game prizes, and even physical prizes that winners will get delivered straight to their doorsteps. This is absolutely the best time to join the action. Just go down to the description and download Raid only through our link to get 50,000 silver immediately, plus a free epic champion as a new player program, and you'll also automatically enter the special 
special launch tournament right away. So see you there. Okay, back to Tyrion here. He picks up a torch and descends the tunnels into the Red Keep, echoing the torch-lit escape that Jaime led him to in season four, but sadly, Tyrion could not repay the favor. As he uncovers Jaime's golden hand and Cersei's face, finally, composer Ramin Jawadi breaks the silence with this music. <laughs> this is the Lannister victory song, The Reigns of Castamere. The lyrics describe their father Tywin's brutal massacre of House Rain, ending House Rain's bloodline permanently. But here, the music scores the end of House Lannister, at least the bloodline through Cersei and Jaime. Tyrion is devastated, and later when he resigns by tossing his hand to the Queen Pin, it's almost as if he's slapping Daenerys in the face with the golden hand of his brother that she killed. Arya and Jon witness the Unsullied and Dothraki celebration, with a massive Targaryen banner now draping the Red Keep. Now, the Red Keep was built by Daenerys' ancestors. It's really a home that belongs to her. And reclaiming it like this reflects Jon reclaiming Winterfell with the white Stark banners after the the Battle of the Bastards, but this victory feels far more ominous. Danny and Drogon arrive with a perfectly lined up shot of Daenerys with Drogon's wings spreading out from behind her, making it look as though the wings are her own. This metamorphosis invokes Daenerys' father, the Mad King, who, like Daenerys' brother Viserys, would threaten to physically transform into a dragon and burn his enemies. Another example of how Danny has become the ruler that her father was. Danny's speech to her troops gives us a glimpse of what rule under her would look like, and it is bleak. She begins by addressing, of all people, the Dothraki. Blood of my blood! You killed my enemies in their iron suits! You tore down their stone houses! Danny is calling back to the moment she fired up her Blood Riders in season 6. Will you kill my enemies in their iron suits and tear down their stone houses? But by opening her speech with a shout out to the most uncivilized pillagers of her ranks, Daenerys is suggesting that chaotic violence will be a major feature of life with Danny. Danny also makes Grey Worm her new Master of War, which is kind of a bad sign because the position of Master of War is new. Cersei invented it when she reorganized the small council after Tywin's death as an attempt to consolidate power and win over her uncle Kevin. It would please the king if you served as his Master of War. I did not return to the capital to serve as your puppet. So Daenerys is keeping the more dangerous aspects of Cersei's legacy intact. Daenerys didn't free anyone from the grip of a tyrant, she just replaced Cersei with a worse tyrant. And as she addresses the general unsullied, their formation frames her as an authoritarian dictator, kind of the way Hitler or Mussolini would address their army formations. Notice how Daenerys calls them liberators, which echoes the Bush administration talking points during the US invasion of Iraq. Remember, Dick Cheney promised the Americans would be greeted as liberators, a statement that was later brought up by critics of the invasion. Remember, these are the same showrunners who used a dummy head of George W. Bush in the background of season one on a pike. They said it wasn't a political statement, they later apologized, but however you slice it, the anti-war themes are very present in this episode and here in the judgment of Daenerys' hawkish sentence. Her words to the Unsullied are in Valyrian, which Jon doesn't speak, one of the many nothings he knows. He's just really getting the dictator vibes from her tone and body language. But his head does turn when Daenerys brings up Winterfell. From Winterfell to Dorne! Winterfell, led by Sansa, poses a threat to Daenerys, as does Dorne, which is a kingdom that historically the Targaryens struggled to conquer. Tyrion does speak some Valyrian, even though he thinks the word for rusty is a word for nostril. But his head does turn when she brings up his home city of Lannisport. From Lannisport to Koth. 
And it's interesting that she brings up Karth, the Esso city that she left in season two, because it reminds us of the promise that she made to Karth city leaders, the 13. We will take back what was stolen from us and destroy those who have wronged me. We will lay waste to armies and burn cities to the ground. As Tyrion is arrested after his resignation, John and Danny's eyes meet with some choice music here. It's a minor key version of their love theme, the dragon and the wolf, except now the cello strings moan sadly as if mourning the death of their relationship. Arya sneaky sneaks behind Jon, making this the third time she got the drop on Kings this season, and she warns him about Danny. I know a killer when I see one. She's echoing her words to Gendry earlier this season. I know death. He's got many faces. One of those faces of death was the Night King, and now Arya is saying that the new face of death is Daenerys. Jon visits Tyrion who says, Is there life after death? Not that I've seen. Tyrion is recalling that Jon freaking resurrected. And Jon's response is what he told Lady Melisandre. What did you see? Nothing, nothing at all. Nothing at all. By bringing this up here, the show clearly wants us to remember that Jon Snow was resurrected by the Lord of Light. They don't want us to forget it as some random, never explained thing that just happened seasons ago. So the folks were complaining that Jon was resurrected for no reason and that prophecies were ignored. Hold on to those butts. Jon and Tyrion debate over the morality and motivation behind Danny's war crimes, and Tyrion assesses his own record. I strangled my lover, I shot my father with a crossbow. This is a confession by Tyrion. For killing Shay and Tywin, he's a doomed man making peace with the gods before his execution. Remember, Jamie actually made the same kind of confession to Brienne before heading off to his death. I pushed a boy out of a tower window. I crippled him for life. I struggled my cousin with my own hands. But Tyrion is comparing his worst deeds to Daenerys's. She liberated the people of Slaver's Bay, and she liberated the people of King's Landing, and she'll go on liberating until the people of the world are free. Tyrion's argument reflects the famous words of German pastor Martin Niemöller, the passage reflecting how moderate Germans during World War II were bystanders excusing the rise of fascism in Germany. First they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists but I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. Tyrion is now that speaker. He did not speak out against authority until it was too late and he's now facing the same fiery liberation that Danny's other victims have. Tyrion tells Jon that love is more powerful than reason and Jon responds, love is the death of duty. He's quoting Maester Aemon at the wall in season one. Love is the death of duty. In that moment, Aemon foreshadowed to Jon the exact choice that he now faces. Sooner or later in every man's life there comes a day when it is not easy, a day when he must choose. In that moment in season one, Jon was struggling with a bloody transfer of power down in King's Landing and an unjust arrest of Ned Stark. But he surrendered his love for family, killing the boy inside him to let the man be born. Which he does again in this episode after a bloody transfer of power in King's Landing and an unjust arrest, he reaffirms his Night's Watch vows. He does his duty to kill that which he loves. And ultimately, this episode, he returns to take the Black. Just like Aemon once did. He was rightful heir to the Iron Throne as well, but he stepped aside, but he stepped aside to allow a younger family member to take his place. Tyrion ends a debate with this interesting question. Who's more dangerous than the rightful heir to the Iron Throne? This finale episode's title is The Iron Throne, and here Tyrion is sardonically hinting at the deeper theme. The 
evil of right, that those who believe that they have the right to power, that they deserve power, and are within grasp of that power, are the most vulnerable to moral corruption, and that they become the most desperate and the most violent in their attempt to take that power. In this regard, Game of Thrones is thematically linking its iconic image, the Iron Throne, with the equivalent in The Lord of the Rings, the Ring of Power. Just like the Iron Throne, the Ring of Power is a man-made treasure forged in fire that corrupts anyone who occupies it. We'll see this comparison play out throughout the final episode. Jon marches to the Red Keep, blocked by Drogon rising up from the snow, guarding the queen. A wide shot of Jon facing Drogon's massive head represents his vivid scale. Jon is a classic dragon slayer hero from mythology like Beowulf. But the shot actually mirrors the wide shot of Tyrion facing the skull of Beleriand the Dread below earlier. It's a sign that Jon has already made up his mind, poised to be Tyrion's champion in his trial by combat in this trial against the Dragon Queen. Drogon looks into Jon's soul, similar to the cryptic look that he gave Jon back in the season premiere, and he lets him past, surrendering. Now this is huge. Drogon only trusts Jon because Jon has Targaryen blood. If you think about it, that makes Jon the only person in the world right now with striking distance access to Danny, and the only one with the moral cause to stop her. Had Jon not been resurrected and not been a Targaryen, no one would be able to stop Daenerys from plunging the world into darkness. Inside the Red Keep, Daenerys' approach to the throne fulfills the imagery from her premonition in the House of the Undying in Season 2. Her damage to the walls and the roof allows snow to drift in, just as it did in her vision. And there's this close-up of her hand reaching to the throne, except in that vision she pulled away, but now she touches it. That vision foretold Danny never fully gaining the Iron Throne, instead becoming Queen of the Ashes and leaving that behind in an afterlife with Drogo. Similarly, in this scene, Daenerys will return east with Drogon, the dragon named after Drogo, and her son will set in the east. The moment Danny touches the throne, this wave of catharsis hits her, much like the drunk trance caused by the Ring of Power. When Jon appears behind her, she turns to meet him, but her eyes for a moment cling to the throne, as if she can't break away from her precious. Danny tells a story about learning the throne was made from a thousand swords, and she laughed that as a girl she could only count to 20. But Jon angrily cuts her off because, the same way a thousand melted swords from Aegon's conquest was hard for her to imagine, a million melted bodies of her conquest don't look like anything to her either. Jon begs her to reconsider, but Danny just smiles and says, It's not easy to see something that's never been before. Amelia Clark plays this moment with such conviction, speaking as an idealist, asking for blind faith. But her phrasing also hints at her insanity, perceiving hallucinations that do not exist, echoing the convictions of her Mad King father. John brings up others out there might also believe that they know what's good, but Danny responds, they don't get to choose. She's repeating the choice words that Tyrion spoke to John moments before about Sansa. She doesn't get to choose. No, but you do. And the choice words that Bran spoke to John in the Godswood. It's your choice. And it all goes back to the choice that Aemon foreshadowed to Jon in Season 1. Jon has already made this choice. He chose duty to the Night's Watch, duty to his family by telling them he's half Targaryen, duty to Tyrion by confronting Daenerys right now. Jon kisses Danny and he stabs her, repeating Jaime Lannister's history as a Kingslayer, but now Jon is the Queenslayer, saving the realm from a mad Targaryen monarch. One could interpret this murder as Jon fulfilling the prophecy of Azor Ahai 
guy. Danny, in a sense, is the sacrificial Nissa Nissa figure, the flaming swords of the Iron Throne as Lightbringer, and Daenerys' death and Drogon's departure is, in a way, Jon vanquishing darkness from this world. Daenerys' final breaths are tragic. Jon cradles her body with her head craned back, still staring at the Iron Throne, the way Gollum died clinging to his precious. Amelia Clark said that in her final moment, she included a hint of vulnerability, the little girl that we met in season one. Drogon arrives, sadly nudging Danny like Simba nudging dead Mufasa. And rather than torching Jon, he dracarses the Iron Throne. Dragons are magical creatures, so perhaps he has the cosmic wisdom to recognize the true source of evil among them. The throne was forged by Dragonfire from Aegon's dragon Balerion. And now the throne is undone by Drogon, with the swords melting down into indistinguishable lava, just as the Ring of Power was. This throne was the symbol that Aegon used to bind the Seven Kingdoms together, causing them to war against each other over and over again throughout the ages in pursuit of this throne. So its destruction signals the end of the game of Thrones. Drogon takes Danny and departs, signaling also the end of magic in Westeros. This episode marks this dramatic climax with a fade to black. Similar to the fades to black that Peter Jackson used in Return of the King after the ring's destruction. So this primary conflict has come to an end and everything that follows is a sort of epilogue that resets the game board. So then a few weeks later, Tyrion is brought to the King's Landing Dragon Pit to face a council, returning them all to the same location in last season's finale. The roll call includes Samwell Tarly, his water bottle, another unnamed High Lord, maybe Howland Reed, some are suggesting it could be. There's Edmer Tully from the Riverlands, Arya Bran and Sansa, Brienne Davos, his water bottle, and Gendry, now Lord of Storm's End, then two more unnamed lords, maybe from the Reach or the Rock, Yara Greyjoy, the new Prince of Dorne, and then from the Vale, Sweet Robin grown up, Mama's Milk done his body good, Lord Royce, and another unknown. Arya threatens Yara, probably hates her for putting the letters A, R, Y, and A in the wrong order. Say another word about killing my brother and I'll cut your throat. And Sansa shuts down her uncle, Edmur. Uncle, please sit. These Stark sisters are setting the table for the younger generation to take over and fix the problems of the previous generation. Sansa reminds Grey Worm that her northern forces have surrounded King's Landing, which could have explained why only the North is granted independence in this scene. Places like the Iron Islands and Dorne might not have the military might to put pressure on the crown like this. Sam proposes that future leaders of Westeros be elected democratically, which gets a big belly laugh from these elitist lords. Now, it is a little odd that Yara laughs this off too, since the Ironborn do traditionally select new leaders with a fairly democratic process called the King's Moot. Although, to be honest, the Ironborn also consider themselves much stronger than the land dwellers, and would probably look down on some urchin from Fleet Bottom having any say in who rules over them. So instead, the council adopts an oligarchical system, a rule by the few, with these elite representatives from across the kingdom selecting the ruler. In the real world, the ancient Greeks had an oligarchy system that they eventually balanced with a more randomized democratic system. So I don't know, maybe we can look at this collapse of bloodline dynasty as a sort of baby step in the right direction. Or maybe considering that America is essentially a financial oligarchy these days, a step in a very dark timeline. Tyrion makes a case for who he wants a new ruler to be. There's nothing more powerful in the world than a good story, and who has a better story than Bran the Broken? Now, you might not agree that Bran has the best story. I mean, Arya's been pretty fun to watch. But Tyrion is right that Bran is the best choice. Bran is impartial, not prone to rage or violence, pride or jealousy or lust. Bran doesn't want anything other than maybe sunlight and a pot of fresh soil. And the council selecting Bran parallels the Fellowship of the Ring selecting Frodo Baggins to carry the burden of the Ring of Power. The humble figure who least wants power is the safest hands in which to rest that power and their best chance at lasting peace. And by naming him Bran the Broken, Tyrion isn't just being a jerk. He's alluding to the 
the wheel that Daenerys aimed to break, and the breaking of the old system, and yes, the breaking up of the continent into six kingdoms in the north, since in Bran's eyes that would lead to a more lasting peace between them. And let's remember the north was historically independent, only ever annexed by Aegon the Conqueror. But now that the Targaryens are finished and the dragons are gone, it makes sense that the north be restored to its longtime independence. And with the first episode of the series ending with Bran's iconic fall, the fall that broke him, his rise here is a mere reflection of that fall, an ascendancy to King Bran the Broken. Tyrion alludes to the words of the Three-Eyed Raven, You will never walk again, but you will fly. This ascent is scored with the main Game of Thrones theme music, but with each measure changing key to scale up and up and up. Bran's response is, of course, a head-scratcher. Why do you think I came all this way? So this implies that Bran knew that this was his destiny, and this is all according to his plan. In season six, Bran did foresee many future events. The explosion of wildfire in King's Landing bringing Cersei to the throne, the shadow of Drogon over King's Landing bringing Danny to the throne. He gave Arya the Valyrian steel dagger, which she would later use to kill the Night King, and he and Sam determined that Jon was the rightful heir to the Iron Throne, and Bran empowered Jon to share this information so that it would unravel his relationship with Danny and create a power vacuum. But while Bran saw all of this, I don't think he necessarily wanted it all to happen. The people of King's Landing burning, Jon killing Danny. I mean, maybe he's a little dirty bastard. But I don't think it was really his plan, just the predestined plan that Bran was now following like a script. Remember, Hodor had always said Hodor before Bran was even born. By warging into Hodor through time, Bran fulfilled a destiny that was already written. So similarly, Bran played the role that was already written for him, a role that would one day, nice for him, lead him to a crown. Bran selects Tyrion as his hand, which is really a kind of punishment. He's made so many terrible mistakes, he's going to spend the rest of his life fixing them. Tyrion stuck back in this job reminds us of the punishment it was at the beginning of the series. What's the line? The king sh** and the hand wipes. This hand, I assume, will like trim hedges and spray pesticide. This finale also restores season one punishment with the solution for Jon Snow, with Tyrion ordering him to join the Night's Watch, just like Ned Stark was originally going to do before Joffrey chopped his head off. Jon asks, there's still a Night's Watch? The world will always need a home for bastards and broken men. Even though White Walkers appear to be destroyed, the Night's Watch must remain to protect the realm against any unknown threats in the future. Because, yeah, that night remains dark and full of terrors. And Tyrion is suggesting it will live on as a kind of penal colony. His words actually echo his line back in Season 1. I have a tender spot in my heart for cripples, bastards, and broken things. And as we will see in these final moments, cripples, bastards, and broken things do indeed inherit this world. Grey Worm says the Unsullied will sail to the Isle of Noth. Noth is Masande's homeland, which Grey Worm promised to take her back in episode two of the season. Noth, I'd like to see the beaches again, and I will take you there. It sounds like Grey Worm is bringing back Masande's remains to bury there, and maybe the Unsullied will stick around in the Summer Isles to protect the people of Noth and the other islands from being taken as slaves from the slavers of Essos. The Unsullied did begin the series as slaves, it makes sense that that would be their future. Jon leaves with the Night's Watch, his hair back to its awesome shaggy look from his brotherhood days. He bids farewell to Sansa, Arya, and Bran from the port, similar to Frodo saying goodbye to his three hobbit friends when he sailed away with Bilbo and the elves at the end of Return of the King. But really, it's Arya's epilogue that's more in line with Frodo's. She tells Jon that she is actually sailing away. What's west of Westeros? Arya is referencing her scene with Lady Crane back in season six, the first time she thought about a future beyond her conflicts. Essos is east, Westeros is west, but what's west of Westeros? It's where all the maps stop. The edge of the world, maybe. I'd like to see that. 
And by chasing this kind of dream, Arya is actually paralleling the ancient figure Alyssa Farman from George R. R. Martin's Fire and Blood. Alyssa was an explorer who sailed west of Westeros across the Sunset Sea on her ship called Sun Chaser. She actually found three islands, which she named Aegon, Rhaenys, and Visenya. And she continued sailing west, but she was never seen again, except her ship, the Sun Chaser, was claimed to have been seen in the harbor of Ashai in the Far East, perhaps confirming that the world of Westeros is round, as George R. R. Martin says it is, and that maybe Alyssa circumnavigated it. Arya could be following in her footsteps. Brienne of Tarth, now Lord Commander of the King's Guard, flips through the Book of Brothers. That's the document that tracks the life and accomplishments of all the knights who served on the King's Guard. Jamie actually pointed this out to Brienne in Season 4. It's a duty of the Lord Commander to fill out those pages, but there's still room left on mine. Brienne has flipped past the pages of Sir Arthur Dane, the legendary knight Ned Stark fought and killed outside the Tower of Joy and Barristan Selmy, but she finds Jamie's sadly pathetic blank pages that just kind of talk about him like a slam book. Remember, this is the location that Jamie started to rewrite his new destiny, the place that he gave Brienne his sword, which she named Oathkeeper. And now that same sword rests on the table before her. She writes this heroic account of Jamie's defense against Danny throughout season seven and his fighting alongside them in the Battle of Winterfell. And she finishes it with died protecting his queen, so that instead of being remembered as the Kingslayer, Jaime Lannister will be remembered as a knight who did his duty. Even if that queen he was protecting was like toxic and like wrong for him. I, sorry, it's gonna take me a while to get over Jaime. In the small council chamber, Tyrion straightens the chairs, calling back the clutter that this room was in earlier. Tyrion is cleaning up his mistakes. Remember, when he was hand of the king in season two, he played political games with the small council. He shrunk it member by member to consolidate power. But now, he takes it seriously. He wants it to function properly. Davos is the new master of ships. Bronn, master of coin. Sam, the new grand maester. You'll notice that Sam has two links on his chain, implying mastery of two subjects, perhaps of history, maybe mastery of medicine, given his expertise curing grayscale. He presents Tyrion with this new, aptly named historical text, A Song of Ice and Fire, Archmaester Ebros's History of the Wars Following the Death of King Robert. Remember, Archmaester Ebros was Jim Broadbent's character from season seven. He told Sam about this new history book he was working on. What? You don't like the title? What would you call it then? Something more poetic? I guess it makes sense that Sam's new poetic title is exactly what George R. R. Martin calls this book series, but it evokes the ice of the Battles of North, the fire of the Battles down south, as well as, of course, the ice and the fire reflected in Jon and Daenerys. Tyrion is not mentioned in this book, but similar to his brother Jaime, the pages of Tyrion's story remain blank. Perhaps this just means that Tyrion's most significant contributions to history are yet to be written. Brienne and Sir Podrick enter with King Bran, who notices some vacant positions. We appear to be missing a master of whisperers, and a master of laws, and a master of war, and a master of gardening. How will I survive? Really, the lack of any rush to fill those spots suggests that Bran and Tyrion are less focused on war, on prosecution, on espionage, than they are with rebuilding the infrastructure, the economy, and health of Westeros, which is a really good sign. Bran leaves the management of the kingdom to them as he prepares to search for Drogon, perhaps hinting at a future for Bran of warging inside a dragon. Davos and Bran bicker, or soon there won't be no more coin. Anymore. Oh, you're the master of grammar now, too. Davos's correction is a habit that he picked up from serving Stannis Baratheon. Oh, less fingernails to clean. Fewer. Less enemies for us. Fewer. And Tyrion brings up his experience with the Casterly Rock sewers to Sam, who says, the Grand Maester has done some research on this subject. Yeah, Sam is referring to his experience cleaning out Maester in season seven in the Citadel. Blech. 
This scene really ends like the final shot of a sitcom, with Tyrion teasing his famous joke, I once brought a jackass in a honeycomb into a brothel, and he doesn't tell us the punchline. Tyrion has set up this same joke twice before, once during his trial in the Eyrie, another while trying to make some small talk with uh, Masande and Grey Worm. Really the best pitch for the punchline I could find online, and I, I'm sorry I couldn't find the source of this. I once brought a jackass in a honeycomb into a brothel, the madam says, What's with the honeycomb? I say, I wish for a house fit for a queen. And she asks, what about the jackass? And I tell her, I wish for the finest ass in Westeros. So I wished for a that hangs below my knees. And it came true, so I came to this brothel. Madam says, that's not so bad. And I say, yes, but I used to be six foot three. Jon Snow returns to Castle Black, finding Tormund, who foreshadowed that Jon would return to the North the last time they saw each other. You've got the North in you. The real North. The final montage centers around Jon, Sansa, and Arya, each of them in a close-up as they ready themselves. Jon with Longclaw, Arya with her dagger, Sansa dressing in fine embroidery, echoing her opening moments on the series, stitching impressive embroidery in Winterfell. Her dress here has a pattern with red weirwood tree leaves. Looks awesome. These intercutting images reflect the opening of the season six finale, which similarly showed characters dressing up for the day, but it was set to the music of Light of the Seven. This montage is scored by new music. This track is titled The Last of the Starks, and it blends leitmotifs from the House Stark theme and the main Game of Thrones title music. So the way that Light of Seven was Cersei's great victory moment, this montage is a victory for House Stark, finally on top after their long suffering throughout the series. The editing syncs up the movement of these three figures, reminding us of the Northern saying about moving and survival. You've got to keep moving, that's the secret. So these three Northerners' success at staying moving has kept them alive. And so they end the series in a march onward. Game of Thrones ends really with the map expanding in all four compass headings. Beyond Westeros, Jon heads north, Arya heads west, Drogon and Danny head east, and Grey Worm heads south. Sansa is crowned the Queen into North! The first ruler of a North that's actually recognized by the Westeros crown in over a thousand years, very much deserved. Arya heads out on a ship that also bears the sigils of House Stark, the direwolf on the sails, and carved into the bow of the ship. She sails west, channeling great explorers like Alyssa Farman, and real-world circumnavigators like Ferdinand Magellan and Amelia Earhart. Her final image shows her gazing off at the horizon, just like the last time she sailed away from Westeros, east to Braavos, the final shot of season four, now she's heading west into the sunset. Like these Stark sisters, Jon also re-embraces his direwolf sigil, a literal direwolf, ghost, giving the good boy a good boy pat, and he leads the wildlings north of the wall in a final scene that echoes the very first cold open imagery of the pilot episode, shot for shot, including the first shot of the series of the gate rising and the wide shot of the horses heading out north of the wall. Except now in this final scene, there are some key differences. The first episode's expedition was essentially a crime scene investigation, hinting at a winter coming, a winter that would take wildling families and children with it. But now the wildling families march north with their children. The icy threat has been defeated. There's even a tiny green plant rising from the snow. Hey, a friend for King Branch! It's a nod to the title for George R. R. Martin's final book of the series, A Dream of Spring, and an elemental counterpoint to the snow-covered death of the opening imagery of this episode. Jon's future is a mystery. Will he stay with the wildlings up north, or is he just leading them on an expedition? Considering his status as a resurrected champion of the Lord of Light, could he follow in the footsteps of the Night's King from the books? Not the Night King from the show, but the legendary Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, who is half alive, half dead, fell in love with a woman with white skin, and in blue eyes. It's fun to hypothesize about these mysteries, but really, if you look at this final imagery, it's filled with peace, with life, hope, 
a dream of spring. John is one of many supernatural forces who are now leaving Westeros behind. If you think about it, Arya Stark is really a ninja assassin pulling off impossible feats, but her power is too much for the continent to handle, so she moves on. Drogon, the dragon, flies off in the opposite direction from Arya, and John, as the one resurrected person, the person who seems to have plot armor that defies all kinds of death, he's leaving north. These forces departing means peace in Westeros can finally last. And with the evil represented by the Iron Throne finally destroyed, the bloody Game of Thrones can end. Comment down below with your thoughts on this Game of Thrones final episode, and thank you to all of you for appreciating this show with me every week. It has brought so much joy into my life, but we still have more Game of Thrones analysis coming your way, and coverage of the upcoming prequel series whenever that happens. Plus, here at New Rockstars, deep dives into everything you love, so subscribe to New Rockstars on YouTube, subscribe to our podcast feed, Westeros Weekly. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter, at EAVoss, and thank you for joining me. And as much as I love the final shots being scored by Rumi, Jawadi's new Song of Ice and Fire theme. I wouldn't have minded if Jon Snow walked off to Dire Straits' Walk of Life. <laughs>